the Dhamma, I'm saying, I think you said this, the Dhamma will take care of you. That is 100% true. You know, we do need to put in personal effort and remind ourselves frequently as the, the momentum is still building. At some point, the practice really starts to be an ally that shows up you know, all the time. It doesn't mean that what we're seeing is great or good news, you know, but we're really increasingly able to see what's happening, you know, in our mind and heart and how we get uh, caught, really get sensitive to suffering as being an option. It's not a necessary consequence of being alive, but there is a cause. And just increasingly there's that ability to be in life in a way that is skillful and wise. Um, one thing that I've been told has been helpful when I've shared this, that so after I left in the monastery, I was kind of, you know, I thought, wow, oh, the quality of my mind is so good. It's just, it's really got a lot of momentum and I'm not going to really suffer again in any big way. <laughs> that was my view. And, uh, so, you know, I just carried on for about a year just thinking a lot about Dhamma and a lot of Dhamma thinking thoughts. Meanwhile, you know, well, so I had just circumstances in my life and something quite painful happened. Uh, and I suffered tremendously. And the thing that I didn't see was that I, as much as I was thinking about the Dhamma, and I felt the Dhamma was very close to what I was really living, if I actually checked my mind during that, that year, I wasn't specifically being mindful. Really clearly knowing what was happening. I had a kind of more conceptual relationship to the Dhamma. And it was so just so revealing that, you know, unless you're practicing these qualities of mind, they're not going to strengthen. So wisdom will get weaker. Right view will fade. Mindfulness will fade. And the opposite is true. If you're practicing, these qualities will grow. Um, and one thing that I have heard Mitesh say recently also, which was somewhat kind of newer, he had said, if, if quoting Mitesh bugs you, I'm so sorry, but he's, he is a such a good resource, these kind of witty little suggestions. Um, but he said, you know, when you wake up in the morning, wake up and create some kind of intention. So just a very simple thought, like I have an intention to be mindful today for a moment. Or you know, have some kind of idea of what that day's purpose is going to be because it's so easy to wake up and just quickly fall into the stream of the day but actually waking up and having an intention for that day. And then take two seconds before you're falling asleep. How did that day go? It takes no energy, so little time. And I think creating those, that kind of container on the day, you know, where we, we all do experience a day where we sleep at night pretty much, wake up in the morning, and we call it a new day. So we might as well use that structure to support some... You know, just a little check-in. Creating an orientation of an intention in the beginning. How did that day go at the end of the day? Um, you know, also just to say, because the world, we, we live life with so many concepts in our life and family and work, we, we are mostly paying to, to the concepts of reality which is why we get caught a lot more in the world, we say. We're less easily mindful. But from the Dharma perspective, it is just the same six sense stories that are happening. Whether we're on retreat, or we're at home, or at work, it's the same processes. It's the same things we're going to be mindful of. And when we really simplify what it is our practice is doing. I just find it that much easier to take up the task to live life with awareness. And it's not so daunting to try and, and check in once in a while and simply recognize, well, how am I feeling? 
I'm able to notice something about this moment and not making it be otherwise that it has to look different, just anything that I can be aware of. Um, and the more you practice, I mean, the more you practice speaking mindfully, listening mindfully, the better you get at it. You know, not, you know, not being seduced by those ideas that I have to get on to the next moment out of a difficult situation in order to start being mindful. We know when we're, when we're agitated, you know, when we're caught up and all that. All we need to do is just recognize that mind state. And as Steve says, letting that be enough. That's my little word. Turn to you guys. Well, if, if out of a monastery, mm-hmm. after a year, we're some. Yeah, it's hopeless. <laughs> right? And I think that's a really good place to start, actually, is mm-hmm. to start with hopelessness. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Pema talks about that a lot, mm-hmm. right? Just, you know, and even there's that piece that Norman Fisher wrote about that just say, we're going to fail. It's, so so there's that. But in, in, in life, when we're working, I, I, like when you're on the, you know, I work in the movie business and I, and I cook. And it's intense. I mean, it is, it's brutal. It's your focus. And you sort of wake up out of it sometimes. But, I mean, sometimes you get a moment of the breeze passing by, and you notice that, or there's just a moment of presence that you're just sort of standing there watching everything go by. But I could spend hours without the word mindfulness ever even getting in the same room, being in the same room. I mean, is, is that, I mean, do you have to say awareness? I mean, do we have, I mean, can we be aware and mindful in the process of life without any prompting? I mean, I suspect we can, but, you know, it's, it just sometimes, it, it seems to pass by you know, it's like you could eat a meal and not even mm-hmm. notice it, but maybe you did. I, I mean, I, I don't know if it's if it made sense, but mm-hmm. yeah. but look on your face is hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> Life goes by, you know. Watch it. <laughs> yeah, rather than just in, be in it, indulging in it, just know that it's happening. You know, the kind, the kind of clarity you have of being mindful or being not mindful or the number of moments of remembering to be mindful on retreat is going to be far more than in the busy hurly-burly of the day. So we're not, we're not looking for that. But, you know, as, as Alexis said, you know, bookend your day with an intention in the morning and a review in the evening and frequently throughout the day so that you just remind yourself. The thing that I find that I have done in my life, both as a monk and, and uh, as a, a layperson, is take those activities that you do every day a lot, whether it's you know do 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 do, doing your thumbprint to get your phone up or whatever it is that you got to do, you know that you do you do dozens of times a day. Make that take a period of time, take a week to really make that something you do with full awareness because you're going to do it you know, a hundred thousand times in the next few years. And if that's a hundred thousand moments of you know, two seconds of present awareness, that's really, going to, that's really going to interrupt the momentum of mindless drift that so much of life looks like. And so, you know, whether it's brush your teeth or going to the toilet, taking a shower or opening doors, putting on your shoes, clicking your mouse, checking your phone, putting the key in the car, you know, there's just, there's just endless number of very routine, ordinary, mundane, repetitive, recurring things that we think, well, we don't think, we don't think, we, we do them mindlessly. And all I'm asking you to do is to bring awareness to them. Because that's, you know, the automatic pilot is the, the alternative to a life of awareness. So whatever you can do to confront that automatic pilotness, uh, that's, that's good work. That's, that, that's what's going to wake you up.
And to think that, you know, paying attention to clicking your mouse or doorknobs or, you know, putting the key in the car is, is not as is not as spiritual as sitting with your eyes closed, cross-legged on a cushion in a quiet room with a candle in front of you, chanting, you know, may I be aware. <laughs> Believe me. You know, if you can be present for putting the key in the, in the lock, that's, that's good. It's, the, it's not, it's, as, we, as we know, it's not the object. It's not the object of your attention that determines the value of the work. It's not the breath. It's not sensations in the body, it's not thoughts, it's whatever, and it's being aware. So, use, use the most ordinary things. And, and particularly speaking. You know, this is, this is what side rotation is, and a uh, kind of vehicle for a lot of insight. And just reflect for a minute how much time in the day we spend talking or listening. It's like hours and hours and hours a day. And if you can bring awareness to that process, you'll be way ahead of the game with some practice. Can you talk more about being mindful while speaking? Uh, <laughs> I ask mindlessly. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, what are you able to notice when you're speaking? What can you notice? The... Well, one thing that you can notice is you can notice the vibration of the breath if you pay attention. So you're feeling the vibration of speaking? Right. And, um, but when, what happens to me when I'm paying attention to the words as they come out is I often lose whatever it was I was going to say. (laughs) So, you know, so that's the tension that I, the difficulty I've had. Yeah, right? so you can just start with this disclaimer. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I might be a little hearing right now. I'm, I'm tracking the vibration. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good try. <laughs> it's, it, it's just not getting, just practicing it. Because it's going to feel awkward anytime we do a new, a new activity. It feels a little bit different. And how do I, how do I, be mindful in a natural way so it doesn't feel like I'm controlling my experience. And a lot of our articulation has been trying to point to letting things be natural so that we can actually get on with our life in a very skillful way because you know, we can't, we're not going to live as monastics, most of us, you know, or at least not permanently. And so how do we live in a very integrated way developing these qualities of mind? And it's simply by by doing it, practicing it, checking what can I very easily be aware of without forcing, without creating tension. You know, and I, there was a time when I was at the monastery and I had, you know, I was attached to my meditation practice and the periods of quiet and there was a monk there who would corner you, I don't know if you meant to intentionally, but and then he wouldn't stop talking hour after hour after hour after hour and you and this happened and I would finally get away and then I could see you would get someone else and I would pass by an hour later two hours later and he'd still have them so every now and then I would you know I'd have a really good meditation and then I'd look out and see if he's there and try to get outside and he would you know of course pop out around the corner and go oh you know and then start talking and you know you had a way where you couldn't you didn't feel too rude to just say, I've got to go. You know, he would just keep going. So at one point, while, while, while I was listening and listening, um, I just saw my mind rumbling away, like, I've got to get back to it all. I've got to get on with my practice. And I, it was like, oh, God, of course, so this is it. Right now, I can be aware of what's happening. It was wonderful, and I've been forever grateful for what he imposed on my, on my practice. Because <laughs> he gave me the opportunity to, to see all the, the ideas you know, that I had about uh, what it is I was very attached to. So, just checking it out, trying, be natural, and keep, just keep, keep checking. What, what's easy? What can I easily be aware of? 
So when you're, you know, on the computer typing, you're sitting there just noticing the tightness that's in the body, maybe, or anything at all. That's very easy, very natural, and the awareness builds from that. You know, and you know, just to say that I, I really just coast in on my my practice. That's why, you know, I think I hit that that difficulty. I wasn't being very awake to what I was beginning to cling to, and that's why I suffered. And if I had been a little bit more sensitive to what was going on and checking, you know, the mind and remembering my view and impermanence and, and you know, these qualities that wouldn't have impacted me. So it is very doable. I just wanted to say it's very doable. And just practice, practice, practice. As much as you're interested. I think because we have a body and mind that's always involved in, in talking or listening, check the body, meaning just just notice your posture. Standing, sitting, lying down, leaning forward, withdrawing, whatever, whatever it is, just somehow just stay stay connected with the body. That, that keeps you grounded. And then check your attitude of mind. Frequently while talking. What's the what's the motivation behind if you just talk and you talk and talk? Or if you're just listening, listening, listening? What's the attitude of mind? Is it with resistance? Is 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 uh, Alexis was noticing, is it with resistance that you're listening? Is it with trying to figure out what to say before they've actually finished saying what they're going to say? Uh, is it out of boredom? Is it out of sense of obligation? Is it a sense of what? You know, you're just checking your mind. You're not making it right or wrong. You're just noticing the way it is. And I think checking both the body and the mind in the listening, speaking uh, dynamic is important. Then it's how we, sorry, then it's how we meet this moment, as many moments as we remember to meet this moment, all the time, as long as we want to continue practicing. That, we don't need to be anywhere. We are just, we're practicing if we want to. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, that, that's what no, I do. that, that guy. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. I didn't mean to say it well. I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, it was a question, I guess. So. Yes, we're right. interested, in, and the mind has the, the conditions, and yeah, there will be some, there'll be some awareness. It's just, you know, it's the same reason why if, you, if we practice, which we have done, we practice reactivity and agitation and distraction, they become the habits. It's just the same. The more we put in moments of, moments of mindfulness, it becomes a habit. And not even trying, you know, it's more and more likely to be mindful. Other comments, questions? Yeah. Well, I think the, the challenge for me is like when you're in it, when the emotions start coming out, especially in terms of relationships, you know, that are in, in the people who you are the closest to, of course, are the ones that can do the triggering better than anything. And the challenge is catching, catching ourselves and coming back to right speech or, or mindful, you know, just watching how that works. Mm-hmm. And so... You know, we, we've been silent here, so we haven't had to deal with any of that. But coming back into the to the, the family and the workplace, you have to deal with those things. Yeah, we have been protected by the seclusion of mind, the seclusion of body in this place. <clears throat> and you're right. Uh, domestic relationships are the most challenging, you know, because, you know, it's so routine, it's so uh, familiar. It's so repetitive and recurring that we take a lot of things for granted, but not awareness. And they know you better than anybody else. And they know you better than <laughs> They know your buttons. And you, yeah, and, mm-hmm, that's right. That's, that's the name of the game in those kind of relationships. It so is, It's very eye-making. Very eye, 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 eye-making. <laughs> I, you, me, you, then explosion. <laughs> <laughs> Um, last night, I think you were talking about sort of energy and then collapse of energy. Yes. I guess we've talked about it a couple times, and I inevitably find when I have 
new habit I'm going to have, or an intention or heavy, but there's a little bit of energy, momentum for a while, and then at some point, a week on the sort of collapse. Do you have any suggestions for how to, you know, I guess A, maintain, but B, at some point, there's naturally some sort of collapse in the momentum from coming out of the retreat, anyways, to sort of get it back up and sort of give it its own energy to help it keep going? So we're talking about the collapse of energy that, well, energy comes and goes, doesn't it? You know, sure. There's both natural energy and, and our interest comes and goes. Uh, everything is in flux. Everything is in flux. And so there will be periods, you know, there'll be high moments on high days, in high weeks, in high years, and there'll be low moments on low days, on low weeks, in low years. And the difference between those two is huge. The mind is there in both, in every situation in between. So we work with whatever the, whatever the conditions are. You know, I, I think that, you know, we get entrapped, we get entrapped in our own uh, assumptions and expectations and attachments. We want clarity, we want continuity, we want things to be good all the time. That's ridiculous. I mean, isn't it? I mean, it's just not. Good, good meaning pleasant or like we want it to be. And so, you know, I think just building in this understanding that there's going to be disappointment, there's going to be frustration, there's going to be challenges, there's going to, and this is normal. It's not like there's something wrong with that. It's like low energy is not a problem. It's being defeated by the idea of low energy or feeling low energy. So I think that you know what I've seen over the course of you know practice is that practice isn't about having some kind of experience and and and, and that being good and everything else other than that is not quite as good. It's about every experience is good in the sense of it's an equal opportunity for awareness. You know there really is no higher valence for one experience over another in a, a lifestyle of awareness. All are equal. And the mind knows all experiences equally effortlessly. So it's like, okay, what we're really watching is our own motivation, our own aspiration, our own intention, our own energy, our own willingness, our own... Huh? So that's really what we're working with is just, you know, uh, and and as here, so there. The way we're able to develop more momentum here is by frequent reminders. You hear it from us, you see it from other people when they're practicing, uh, you get reminders by reading the book. I- everything is a reminder to just check your mind, check your attitude. Are you, is the mind aware? What, what, what are you noticing? What's, what's the quality of mind now? The more reminders you can put in your life, the more, the more momentum will be. So, you know, not not to think that oh, how am I going to prevent collapse of energy, but rather how am I going to recognize it? Because that's there's awareness. If, I just want to add, if, if there if the collapse is coming from and it doesn't really sound like this is what's happening, but if it's coming from an exhaustion of practicing. Then we'd say that's you know not the kind of energy you want to be using, right? So the energy you want to be using is an energy that feels very sustainable. It's wise effort, right? So if a collapse comes because I've been, you know, practicing in a way that's like I, this is not sustainable and oh, I'm just going to stop. Okay, just check to see what how much energy and what kind of energy am I trying to put in? And maybe I'm trying too hard to do something. So it depends on where if a collapse how a collapse comes. Yeah, I just wanted to say something about how, how important it is to uh, at home Dharma friends, you know, people who are on the same path. Um, that's really crucial for me to be in a community that uh, supports me. I support them. Not everybody in my life is doing this, obviously, um, but enough people are that uh, it's just it's immeasurable, the, the value of having uh, those people in, in your life. 
Find them. Get them. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's that's a good point, uh, Laurie. That you know there are three refuges. The Buddha. Yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna repeat it. There are three refuges: the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. And while we hear the teachings and whatnot from the Dharma, and we can recognize our own awareness potential as the Buddha. Having friends, having people that you practice with, having a community of support, having a weekly sitting, having a monthly commitment, serving a Dharma organization or community, essential, essential. If we had to do this alone, we wouldn't do it. We wouldn't do it. You know, so thank your, thank your other Dharma friends. And, and if you don't have any that you practice with on a regular basis, whether it's daily, weekly, monthly, then start one. Start your own group. Get a Dharma friend. Really, really important. Charlie? Yeah, one of the things that I see, that, that the similarities, is in the 12 steps and the Dharma, is the fact that, you know, in the 12 by 12, or 12 steps, 12 traditions, it says, uh, these are a set of principles which if practiced, spiritual in nature, which if practiced will make us usefully whole. And it's so true, the Dharma does the same thing. When I can take that word from the Dharma and, and pass it on to, say, the, the, the guys over at Soledad Prison and, and start to show them mindfulness, it really, really, uh, that's, that's that spiritual nature that I get to use that broadens my spiritual path and allows me to get through those low spots. You know, and Bill Wilson says that if we if we broaden our spiritual path through self-sacrifice and working with others, we're able to get through those low spots. So that similarities that the Buddha talks about are, you know, it's amazing. I, I always see those similarities. And when you were talking about the ten steps of access, basically when when we uh, awaken, we look at our day, we do an inventory of ourselves. How can I be a better human being today? How can I help somebody? You know. Uh, that will not mind be done, basically is what it says. And then at the end of the day, we reflect on what was my day like? Was I, you know, uh, rude, uh, uh, angry, whatever? If I was, then I need to look at that so tomorrow I can go and make any amends and correct my errors. So there's so, so many similarities that I see. And I, I just want to thank you too. I really got so much out of this retreat. I, I really, my eyes opened up even wider today, and I, I just want to thank you. Thanks for sharing. It reminds me of um, there's a sutta, you know what which one it is, um, where the Buddha actually is slightly reprimanding Sariputta, who was one of his his chief disciple in wisdom, for not. <coughs> being compassionate and offering uh, some teachings I think that someone had come and asked for but it's basically saying you, you should be active in what you have to offer you know and, and even someone so wise would need a little bit of a recommend I, who knows what happened but just that it's a real encouragement yes we should be enacting these qualities of mind and that they would, it would happen naturally and spontaneously when we're in a place it feels yeah. pretty clear and grounded. With that in mind, um, do you have any suggestions for when you encounter delusion? I'm sure a lot of them are Suggestions for when you encounter delusion in yeah, other people? You were mentioning the Buddha for the launching Sariputta to share the Dharma mm-hmm. in some way. There's So the 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 challenge is when we, with our exquisitely clear, minded, (laughs) profound, insightful understanding, uh, notice some delusion in others. behavior or comments or words. And how do we, in our infinite wisdom and compassion, 
Obviously, very, very carefully. <laughs> and having seen how easy it is to uproot our own delusion, <laughs> we then undertake the task to. There's the point that I, I try to remember and that I try to, if, if necessary, uh, convey is that the Dharma is really pointing to the truth of the way things are. And just because someone isn't seeing things the same way I am, or understanding them, doesn't mean that they aren't seeing the way things are for them. So, you know, how can I share my experience of the way things are for me without demanding or even expecting that they're going to say, yeah, that me, me too. Because they don't. And the, the, the example I want to share is that I had a student uh, that mentored for uh, some number of years and he was uh, in the community Dharma Leaders Program. So he was working in the community. And then he moved to uh, New Mexico and for some in some way, I don't know how it happened, he became a spokesperson against capital punishment in uh, New Mexico. And, of course, most of the invitations he got to speak were to people that already agreed with him. You know, agreed with, let's, let's, let's abolish capital punishment. And I, and I told him, I said, you know, to speak, you know, preaching to the choir is easy. They get it, you know. That's you know. We're all in the same, you know, uh, kind of dharma field, so to speak. The challenge is how to speak the dharma to those who haven't yet heard it, or haven't yet kind of come to understand or appreciate it. So it's not like you're trying to convince somebody of something, but rather you point to the truth. You point to the truth of your experience and. You know, some people will get it. They'll have the openness, the intuition, the, the intuitive understanding, the willingness to, and, and maybe it's compassion, to hear what you're saying. And, and some people won't. And, you know, closed minds don't, you know, don't, I would say don't waste your time. I, I, don't, I don't mean it quite like that. But, um, you, you know, you understand, you pick your, you pick your battles carefully. If possible. Didn't the Buddha say, don't offer the Dharma to anyone that doesn't ask for it? So, didn't the Buddha say, don't offer the Dharma to anyone who didn't ask for it? That's what, that was my understanding. Yeah, I, I, I don't know, uh, uh, I've never read a source like that, but I've always understood that the Buddha encouraged monks and nuns to uh, offer when invited you know? and I don't know if the corollary of don't offer if it's not invited was there or not but um, proselytizing doesn't doesn't do much for the Dharma so uh, but still when you speak if you speak the tr- your truth you know the truth as you see it the experience of your truth um, or the truth of your experience, both, both ways. Then I think, you know, who can argue with that? This is my experience. You know, you're not. I'm not telling you how to how to behave or think or believe. But this is the truth of my experience. So you share. <clears throat> Any remaining? Of course, there is. There's always. <laughs> how about anybody that hasn't asked a question or raised their hand in the whole retreat? That's always a good. Yeah. Well, it's more of a comment, but <clears throat> based on what I've heard from some other people, um, I I belong to a, in a small community uh, to a a sangha, and I really encourage anybody that doesn't have that that uh, uh, we're leaderless, so we're democratically run, and uh, and it works pretty well for us, and it's real supportive. 
So I just want to like reinforce what some other people said. He said about the Sangha as uh, one of the three refuges. That um, so for the last several years uh, we've included. So we listen to we we do a sit and then we listen to a Dharma talk. And for the last several years we've included a couple times a week this process we call practice notes, where people get to share just like we're doing now about little insights and techniques and steps along the way that have been beneficial. And it's been real helpful listening to other people. Um, I guess that's why I was wanting to reinforce that. Oh, and then the other thing that uh, Steve, you mentioned about um, kind of little rituals or signals you, you can create for yourself to, to wake up and to alert. And I think that's the thing about uh, being around other people that they can share those um, those techniques for alerting yourself. <clears throat> and, uh, and and one that's happened for me that I'll here's my practice note is uh, um, when I when I see the sun or the light and it's reflected on water or in a puddle or coming through filtering through trees, it's that's my little signal to pay attention, to see, do a little scan, and to be present. Yeah. Yeah. So the comment is about the value of uh, peers, not necessarily leaders in the Dharma. And, uh, you know, I'll, we'll re, re, remind you of this tomorrow, too, but, you know, we're not the only two in the room with wisdom and Dharma experience and, and, and knowledge and good ideas of how to practice. All of you who've been practicing have, have tried infinite number of things. Some work, some don't. And sharing your understanding and your experience with others is profound teaching. And so, yeah, I, 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 I agree. You know, the more you share the nuts and bolts of your practice with others, the more, the more, the more you get in return. And that's that's what practice is about. It's really getting both uh, encouragement as well as advice and what what has worked for others. So, whatever, how would you share that? Others is a good idea. <coughs> Any last comment? Yes, last. Will you be speaking or say something at some point about, um, you know, any, you mentioned Dharma Seed as resource and then the book, but I mean, are there any other resources for, you know, kind of little refreshers in between retreats that you can mention that you haven't already? Access to insight. Access to insight? Yeah, access. First of all, let's just say that there is a, there's infinite dharma and practice resources on the web. It's just more than you could ever follow, ever track down. The challenge is finding what's useful for you, you know. And um, just go on and take a look. There's just there's just tons and tons of stuff out there, both courses and talks and practices and guided meditations and, you know, exercises and classes. It's just, it's just, well, it's infinite. So, specific to this practice? Yeah, Utejaniya has, there's a lot of recordings, there's a lot of recordings of Utejaniya's teachings, uh, commentaries, uh, discussions with students. Um, he has, he has these three books out. There's a couple more coming out next year. On Dharma Seat. Yeah, but but for for Utejaniya style or, or guidance, yeah. Yeah, in that regard, Steve, but do you want to mention some of the like Heather Martin and? Uh, yeah, there are some other. Yeah, there are other teachers like Heather Martin that teaches somewhat influenced by this, and then Andrea Fella uh, in the Bay Area is very and Carol Wilson. Yeah. So any any of those teachers, both their talks, their retreats. Who's that? Carol? Carol Wilson. Carol Wilson. Carol Wilson, Andrew Fella, Heather Martin. Joe Francois. Not so much of Utejaniya style, but 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 still, he's. I mean, there's a lot of good teachers out there, but Utejaniya style. The woman in Vancouver, whose name I must forget. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
What's that? The woman in Vancouver whose name I almost forget. She teaches in The woman in Vancouver. Yeah. I don't know who I want to take a period of time now. Uh, Laura has come in uh, to speak with us in a few minutes, but I want to take some time to uh, talk about the uh, practice of dana on this retreat. And many of you are experienced students and have been on retreats before, so it may be repetitive or a refresher, but some of you are new to retreats, uh, new to this tradition of, of uh, practice. Um, as, as someone acknowledged, so the Buddha encouraged his monks and nuns to um, offer the Dharma where they were invited by people who were sincere and interested in hearing the Dharma. And the requirement of monks and nuns in those days was that they depended on lay people for their daily alms, food, and for their uh, the requisites of food, clothing, shelter, and medicine. And so, while they could accept invitations to um, share the Dharma with those who were interested, they could only stay if they were supported on a daily basis. And that tradition of uh, freely offering the Dharma and students and or lay people freely offering support has been the way that the Dharma has come to us here in the West. Um, as far as we know, there's been an unbroken chain of uh, monks and nuns uh, since the time of the Buddha, 2,500, 2,600 years ago, to, to hear, practice, realize, and share the Dharma and that's the way it's been brought to us. And for our teachers, um, a lot of them, Utejani and Ubandita and others, are, have been monks, but also lay teachers uh, have received the teachings freely, have had the opportunity to practice, and have, when invited, shared the teachings freely. Now, when the first generation of Western teachers came, returned from Asia, and came to America and Europe to teach, and this would be Ruth Dennison, Joseph Goldstein, Jack Cornfield, Sharon Salzberg, Christopher Titmus, Christina Feldman, and a few others, that was first generation, they had to really consider how they were going to do this. Because in Asia, you can go and practice without a charge for as long as you want to practice. But in America, it's not, and in most other places in the West, it's pay-as-you-go. So it is a, to me, it's a testament of the wisdom of that first generation of teachers that hit upon and came up with this hybrid idea that the centers and the organizers of retreats and the cost of retreats would be paid for, but the teachings would be offered freely. And this is a, um, a hybrid model of East and West, which has proven now, over four decades, to be quite uh, wise and workable. Um, there's some challenge to that, you know, as, as the Dharma spreads and more people are getting involved. There's some, there's some adaptations to that and challenge to that, but up till now it's been pretty, pretty much... Um, the way it has worked, and I too, and Alexis too, have uh, uh, undertaken that commitment to freely offer the Dharma when invited, and when we're able to offer it. What that means is that we're not paid by anyone, we're not paid by, in this case, any of the, the registration fee that you have paid to Cloud Mountain. Uh, other than our transportation to get here and our food and lodging while we're here and our transportation uh, back to wherever we, we came from. And so that, that allows us to be here. Uh, but we're able to do this work and share the Dharma as we do because, well, we have received support from many of you uh, for many years. And let me just take the opportunity to say 
I'm very grateful and thank you very much for your ongoing support. Um, you know, retreats like this are, are not not everyday fair. They're pretty, they're special. Uh, and the, the kind of relationship that we have between students and teachers sharing the Dharma and sharing our hearts and really opening to each other and you entrusting your spiritual life in some ways to our guidance is really uh, it's really special and it's a it's a it's a profound uh, responsibility from from my view and our view and perspective to to care for your aspirations and your efforts <coughs> and your understanding with the the most integrity and the most wisdom that we can come up with. And uh, it's it's powerful, you know. Uh, it's it's a awesome and uh, beautiful, really beautiful relationship to have with people. It'd be nice to have that kind of relationship with everyone. Um, so let me just say that you know, as I hear uh, Alexis sharing his experiences teaching, and as I know for myself, I really try to uh, authentically represent the teachings of the Dharma as I've heard them and practiced them and realized them and I hear the same from Alexis Uh, as you know there's just a lot of teachers around and to to varying degrees they're all trying to do the same thing if if what we say resonates with you that makes us uh, happy if it doesn't that's okay Uh, that's not we don't take that as a a criticism either but I want to say about uh, support um, it looks like what we're doing here is exchanging I'll offer you the Dhamma you offer me support and I think that's a, a, a degraded way of thinking about what we're doing here um, because many of you have been practicing for a long time and have been supporting centers like this and, and teachers like myself and now Alexis and others um, I just want to say that I'll offer, the, I'll offer you the Dharma uh, without any expectation. It's not an exchange. It's not a quid pro quo. It's not an exchange. Uh, you know, if you offer support to me, please don't consider it a tip or an exchange or a barter or something like that. It's your practice of generosity. And generosity is one of those qualities of heart that really... Uh, lays the foundation for liberation in that generosity is learning how to let go. Let go of both material resources but let go of our attachment. And the whole path of awakening is learning how to let go. And as the Buddha pointed out, generosity is, is not a particular Buddhist practice. It's kind of a human, a good human being practice in every culture. And so, it's a great joy for me to think that I can just offer you the Dharma freely out of the generosity of my own time, uh, interest uh, in your well-being, and uh, the best I have. And if you can consider whatever support you wish to offer, uh, and I know many of you have or will, uh, please consider it you know, your own development of Renunciation, your own development of the goodness within your own heart and from the depth of your understanding. Practicing generosity with wisdom is really important. Not just out of expectation or out of obligation or a sense of um, habit, you know, but really to bring awareness to what it, what it means for you to uh, appreciate the Dharma and to hear the Dharma and to uh, support in this case, both Alexis and I to continue to offer the Dharma. <clears throat> when I receive gifts of financial support from you and others, I don't consider it pay. Of course, the government considers it pay, so <laughs> we pay taxes. <laughs> that's, that, that's their view of things. That's their right view 
Our right view is it's not pay. My view is. And instead, I consider it, and I know some of you have heard it before, but let me just mention it to others. I consider it your investment in having the Dharma available to you in your life and in the future. It's like, if you support teachers, if you support centers like this, it's laying the foundation for having the Dharma available in the future, both for you, for your kids, for your nieces and nephews, and future generations. It's not guaranteed that it's going to be available, but gifts of support do that. And so when I receive money in that, in that form, I think, okay, how can I, how can I distribute this in a way that most supports having the Dharma available. Part of it is to pay my food and gas money to get here and things like that. But the rest of it goes to both supporting uh, students who are coming into the teaching field. Uh, it's to support centers like this, often with scholarships and or uh, service of one sort or another, other Dharma organizations. Uh, I have been developing uh, with Kamala uh, Masters a um, Dharma sanctuary in Maui, which takes a fair chunk of time and change. Uh, also for printing uh, and distributing Utejaniya's books. We've been overseeing that for a number of years. Uh, for bringing Sayadaw to America several times uh, to teach uh, and uh, just supporting and, and of course offering Donna to Sayadaw and for the building of his Center for Foreigners in Burma as well as other, our other teachers both Western teachers and uh, Asian teachers centers um, and it's just whatever whatever is going to make help support the Dharma being available, the practice opportunities, and the teachings. So, in that way, it's a, it's a fiduciary, it's kind of like a fiduciary responsibility I have to, to, uh, that I feel to uh, steward your resources in the direction that will be most beneficial for you and others who are interested here in the Dharma. Um, that's just the way it is for me. And I, I while it, while it might sound, and you know, I know Alexis is just getting started in this field, and he'll he'll have his own way of thinking about these things. Uh, but I want to keep in mind. And it's a it's a great way to live, actually. You know, as, as fragile as living on donations is, in my heart, in my mind, uh, it's, not, it's not fragile. It's the only way to live, you know, in, in this role. And uh, it's great. It's just a really uh, a beautiful relationship to have to the Dharma and to students and to centers to, to offer what we can. So... Uh, in, a, in anticipation but not expectation that there will be some support for our being here and some of you will make financial gifts. Let me just thank you. Thank you very much. It is really uh, a privilege to have this kind of relationship with you and to uh, not to demand or expect that you're going to support, but when you do, thank you very much. And if you can't, do your practice. Thank you very much. That's what. That's where the real gift is: sharing your practice through your behavior and your understandings with everyone you live with. Now, I like to be very clear and transparent about the whole financial thing. You know, money in America and money in Canada, money everywhere—it's a big deal. It's it's taboo, you know, to talk about it. But in this in this business of acknowledging the truth of things. And being as transparent as possible, it's, it's, it's as open and as fair game as anything else. If you have any questions or any comments or any 
whinging or whining or complaints, or you want to see a, a spreadsheet of income and outgo, uh, whatever, whatever, however it is, that would help you to feel uh, confident, to feel uh, supported, to 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 know what you need to know to support your aspiration, your practice, then we'll try to do the best we can. Is there any questions? You know, as I sometimes say, there's no sugar Buddha. Anonymously putting big checks in our checking account, weekly, monthly, annually, it's a little lot of little sugar Buddhas. (laughs) Aspiring Buddhas is kind of doing that. Is there a difference between um, offering dhamma to, to you directly or to the Pasanavada Foundation? I'm clear about yes. what happens to Right. So the question is, there is, is there a difference, practically speaking, between offering dhamma to me and or Alexis directly, personally, or to the Pasanavada Foundation, which is our non-profit uh, organization? Yes and no. Yes, in the sense of the Buddha suggested, the Buddha offered, the Buddha said, taught, that when you, when you make gifts, if you can uh, approach the recipient personally, if you can offer to them within an arm's reach, and you can see the joy on their face, and you can express your gratitude in that way, then if you give a gift of value and you give it respectfully, and you give it knowing that there will be some benefit from it, then that makes the most imprint on your mind. And it's the imprint on the mind that is the, that will have its karmic effect. So the more you imprint on your mind the actual gift of letting go, the, the act of letting go and practicing generosity, the more impact it has on your karma and the benefit of that act of generosity. So that's that's the teaching part. Uh, practically speaking, as far as where does the money go and who gets the money and how is it spent and all that, no difference. It goes to the nonprofit and it's used, it's distributed to other nonprofits that are Dharma, or, uh, Dharma organizations. But whatever we are offered or, or receive from that as a for personal use, that's taxed. So that's what we pay taxes on. So, I mean, we pay taxes on personal gifts too, but um, so in, in that sense, really not much difference. No. Okay, I see a bunch of questions. No, I just want to make a comment on that. Yes. On that question. Yeah. Uh, I think there's one more difference, which is that if you give to Steve or Lexus, uh, Steve or Lexus will pay tax, and you will pay tax. If you give the Pasanavata Foundation, Steve Lexus will pay tax. You will not pay tax. Yeah, that's true. If you if you do offer to the non-profit uh, Pasanavata Foundation, you can get a tax uh, benefit from that. Yeah, and we send out tax uh, tax letters at the end of the year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just didn't understand. What is your preference for how the dollar go and? If we make one check out, does it go to both of you? Or should you assume that? Or that there's a uh, there's a form up back uh, that they'll be out. I don't know if they're out yet, but there's a form there that you can tell us exactly how you want to do that. Whether it's cash, check, uh, PayPal, credit card, uh, we'll we will pull it all together and distribute it between ourselves and and wherever else it, it needs to go. But the, the funds received here will, will go to the two of us for our uh, assignment to other, um, in other ways. So, no preference, really. Just whatever's of benefit to you, whatever feels good to you, yeah. whatever, whatever supports your idea of being generous and supporting the time, keeping that foremost in mind. Other questions, comments? Anyone say anything? Mm. 
Thank you for any generosity that you offer. Very deeply appreciated. It's a a beautiful system of thinking of uh, it really being this wonderful, ongoing, uh, alive nature of keeping the Dharma very pure, that uh, we all come for profit, that we're passing forward things that were freely offered to us. You know, I, I took countless hours with my various teachers and wore their ears off with all my questions and defilements and they were incredibly patient. And they just did it from the generosity of where the Dhamma comes from. So it's a real pleasure to be, able to be in this role now and talk to the Dharma. I think you know that I would keep talking forever about the Dharma once I have the mic on and the Dharma starts going I just want to keep talking about the Dharma (laughs) I love it and I want to share it so anyways real joy and pleasure and thank you for your practice any remaining comments questions (coughs) so tomorrow we'll have a formal I mean you can make your gifts to the um, with the forms up back and tomorrow you can offer them individually to us or in a group we'll have a, a group uh, offering ceremony yeah. so Laura's here um. thank you for listening to learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate